If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. We want to look at verses 16 through 26 this morning. And as we get into our study, uh, praise the Lord for that devotional, Brother Vance. Uh, well done. I appreciate that. That was well... well yes, that's, right. that's why I'm saying well done. You took a big, a big topic and condensed it very well. So that, that was great. Good stuff. Uh, let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Minister to our hearts as we study together. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in Matthew. And we're down here in chapters 8 through 10. The power of the king proving his prophetical right to the throne. The Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament would be a unique person, unlike any other person in the history of the world. He would be both divine and human in one person. And as such, he would do things that no one else could do. You know what those kind of things are called? Impossible things. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Uh, impossible things. As Jesus said in Matthew nine twenty five, with God, all things are possible. God can do things that no one else can do. So when Jesus did the impossible, it was evidence that he was God come in the flesh. He was the prophesied coming messianic king. Now, Jesus' ministry was so unique that the Jewish religious leaders considered it unorthodox and illegitimate. John the Baptist's disciples also had questions. It's a little unorthodox. We're over here fasting like spiritual people should do. You guys are over here just feasting away and celebrating like none other. They came and they had questions. And they wondered why... Jesus and his disciples did not fast like they and the Pharisees did. Jesus responded with this provocative question. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The obvious answer is no. Because the wedding is a time of celebration and joy. Not a time of mourning and fasting. And what Jesus says next builds on this as we go into our study this morning. Matthew 9, 16, we pick it up there. 9, 16, 17. Jesus says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins. And both are preserved. Here we have two parables or illustrations showing that the new paradigm that Jesus was presenting was incompatible, incompatible with the old Judaistic paradigm. Everyone knows you can't use an unshrunk piece of cloth to patch up an old garment. As it shrinks, it will just tear and make things worse. Likewise, putting new wine into old, brittle wineskins would cause the fermenting wine to burst the skins. Thus, the new and the old are clearly incompatible. Now, the context here is very important to properly understand what Jesus was saying. Now, we have often noted that Matthew presents things often thematically. And not necessarily chronologically in order. However, in all three synoptic gospels, synoptic means similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. 
In all three synoptic gospels, the illustration of garments and wineskins immediately follows the question about fasting. So in all the synoptics, this is the pattern right here. So the context of what Jesus is saying here relates to the fasting practices of the disciples of John and the Pharisees. And by application, their ascetic tendencies in general. And the point is, the old garment of these Judaistic practices was incompatible with the new joyous realities brought into place by Jesus. What Jesus brought was not merely a patch to Judaism. Rather, it was a brand new wine, so to speak, which required new wineskins. Now, the question about fasting in verse 14 came from the disciples of John the Baptist. You see, John's ministry was about, the, about brokenness and preparation as he called the people out on their sin and called for repentance. Jesus' ministry brought a celebration that the king was now on the scene. He's the bridegroom. It's a time of celebration. John, in a sense, brought the morning. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. While Jesus brought the joy. Note in the Bible, wine is often associated with celebration and joy, not the abuse of it, but the proper use and enjoyment of it. In addition, wine is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. What was now different could be summed up in one word, namely, Jesus. Fasting denoted mourning, but Jesus brings the joy. John the Baptist had a ministry in which fasting was fitting. But now Christ, the bridegroom, was here. And the appropriate response to those receiving him is that of joy and celebration. You know, in the presence of the Lord is great mourning. Is that what the Bible says? Psalm 16, 11. No, in the presence of the Lord is what? Fullness of joy. Jesus brings the joy. The old ascetic ways of Judaism in general now had to give way to a a fresh newness of joy found in the presence of Jesus. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 21 through 24, this is right the night before he was crucified, he's talking to his disciples. He said, a woman when she is in labor has sorrow because her hour has come, but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow. I mean, the whole thing surrounding the crucifixion is about to take place. But I will see you again. And what's going to happen? Your heart will rejoice. Joy in the resurrection. Your joy no one will take from you. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus came to make the joy full. Now with the coming of Jesus comes unparalleled joy, which is not reflected in the old ways prior to him. It's a whole new day. It's a day of joy. Ultimately, resurrection joy, which is kind of pictured in where we go in our study today as he raises this little 12-year-old girl back to life. Imagine what happened there. No, we're still going to continue to mourn even though you're back. Oh, no. 
We're talking, can you imagine the celebration went on in that house that day? Uh, it's really kind of hard to fathom. Yes, the believers had life and they had joy under the old system as, as believers. But Jesus came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. There's a fullness. Uh, is that, that's not the right word. Is that the right word? There's a more, more fullness to it. Every once in a while I coin a word. I don't even mean to. <laughs> Jesus didn't come merely to reform Jewish religion, but to bring about a whole new reality of joy that is found in him alone. We are no longer under the Mosaic law as a code to live by, but rather under the law of Christ. In effect, Christ himself is now the code we live under. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The book of Colossians makes it very clear that we don't add a little patch of Jesus to the old system. Hebrews is the same emphasis. We don't add Jesus to legalism. We don't add Jesus to asceticism. No, rather, Jesus stands alone and he is sufficient. Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, you are complete in him. Colossians 2, 16 and 17, so let no one judge you in food or in drink. You know, all those Jewish regulations. Don't let anybody judge you. Say, oh, you're not as spiritual as you should be or you'd be keeping the diet like we are. Like some want to do today. Don't let anyone judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. We should have been meeting yesterday. You do know that, right? Wrong. I mean, that's the old system. Christ was risen on the first day of the week. And the church has been meeting in honor of the risen Christ ever since. Worshiping on the first day. These things, he says, are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. And then Colossians 3.11, I love that at the end where he says, but Christ is all and in all. The shadows of the old have given way to the substance of Christ, who is now our all in all. We are complete in him. Christ is not merely an add-on. He's not merely a patch. He's the whole new deal. And he is sufficient. He is our full joy. A footnote here, there is considerable continuity between the Old Testament scriptures and the ministry of Christ. But the religious system, as a system under Judaism, cannot be mixed with the new realities found in Christ. Any attempt to do so results in theological disaster. Groups like the Hebrew Roots Movement that try to conflate the teachings of Christ and Hebrew traditions and the Mosaic Law inevitably result in serious legalistic error. Note very carefully that Christ taught that the old ways and his new ways were not compatible. That is the point. You can't have it both ways. You can't live under Christ as your code and at the same time live under the law as your code. Because the law code says you've got to follow every jot and tittle, every all 613 laws in thought, word, and deed all the time. It's one or the other. You're living under Christ, the law of Christ, or the law of Moses. You can't have it both ways. They're incompatible. And this is what the Bible teaches consistently here. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You're not under law, the Mosaic law, but you're under grace. 
Romans 10, 14, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But we are under something, 1 Corinthians 9, 21. This is in the middle of a context where Paul is saying he becomes all things to all men, you know, with the goal of saving people. But he says to those who are without law as without law. But then he puts this qualifier in there. Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. He is under the law of Christ. We're not under the law of Moses as a code to live by. But we are under the law of Christ. And his chief guiding spiritual law is love. The law of love. The law of Christ is the law of love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, etc. By the way, legalism and joy don't go together. Have you ever seen a happy legalist? I mean, just think about it for a moment. Do you know a happy legalist? Well, maybe, but I would suggest to you that the trend is this. The only time they're really happy is when they critically catch someone not keeping their foolish forms of legalism. Joy goes together with Jesus and the new liberty found in him. Jesus is our joy. These guys are sour dour over here fasting and Jesus' disciples are over here celebrating and they can't figure it out. You ought to get spiritual and sour dour over here. And Jesus, oh no, it's a whole new day. I'm here. Verse 18. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Now, the parallel passages to Matthew 9, 18 through 26 are found in Mark 5, 21 through 43, and Luke 8, 40 through 56. Matthew condenses these accounts to make the salient points he wants to make. So Matthew gives kind of an abbreviated version of these accounts. It kind of blends them a little bit. The ruler is stated in Mark 5.22 to be a ruler of the synagogue, evidently in Capernaum. And his name was Jairus. Now as a ruler in the synagogue, he would have been well respected in the Jewish community. These rulers administratively oversaw the activities related to the synagogue and were responsible to do such things as line up teachers, etc. Now, he came to Christ literally bowing down, indicating humble respect or perhaps even worship, as it is translated here in the New King James. In the parallel passages found in Mark 5.23 and Luke 8.42, we are told that initially this ruler's daughter was dying. But then in short order, a follow-up report came in the context, in the, you know, you got close context, fast-moving parts here. Uh, in short order, a report came that she, saying that she had died. And so the Bible Knowledge Commentary has this note. This apparent discrepancy is explained by the fact that while Jesus was speaking to Jairus, someone came from his house to tell him the girl had died. Matthew did not mention that detail. And therefore included the report of the, the girl's death in Jairus' request. So he's conflating some things here. So we look at the, all of the accounts here. Well, this ruler definitely had faith that Jesus could heal his dying daughter by simply laying his hand on her. But then the report came that she had indeed died. And Jesus said to the ruler in Luke 8.50, Do not be afraid. Only believe. And she will be made well. You know, as long as somebody's alive, you still got a little hope, right? But now the report, she's dead. And Jesus says, 
don't be afraid. Even though <laughs> worst possible outcome, humanly speaking, has happened, don't be afraid. Just believe she'll be made well. A footnote, the other parallel uh, gospels tell us that this girl was 12 years old. Uh, this was the age when a Jewish boy was counted as a man and a Jewish girl had reached the initial stage of adulthood, 12 years old. How about you look at your 12-year-old and say, you're a man, now act like it. <laughs> verse, ni- verse 19. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. Jesus and his disciples arose to follow the ruler to go to his home. And when suddenly Jesus sensed a special touch on the hem of his garment. Now, this was an interruption, right? We have an emergency. We have an emergency, lady. I'll get back to you. Uh, Three o'clock this afternoon, I'm available. But right now, we have an emergency. Uh Uh-uh. Not Jesus. This was definitely an interruption. This ruler had a desperate situation. And he asked Jesus to come in hopes that Jesus would heal his dying daughter. Jesus had immediately set out to come and help. And then the interruption. Put yourself in the place of this father, by the way. You know, I have four daughters. Uh, Put yourself in the place of this father. Can can you imagine uh, this interruption and how frustrating it must have been to him? And in the process, as we got this interruption, then in the middle of this whole thing, somebody says, oh, she's died. I knew it. We need to get there. I'm sure he thought time is of the essence. Uh, It's not only true in terms of real estate, but also in matters of health. But yet, God is sovereign over timing, including interruptions. William MacDonald says, Jesus was never annoyed by such interruptions. He was always poised, accessible, and approachable. Uh, He was never annoyed by such interruptions. Uh, How about, you know, you? Uh, are you perfectly Christ-like? Or, uh, interruptions never annoy you, right? Uh, I mean, you're just like me. We, we, we have that handled, right? Uh, we're, we're probably in process. But this is good. Uh, what we call an interruption may be a divine appointment. It certainly was here. Once again, Matthew does not give much detail, but rather summarizes this account, as he is prone to do as he's working through this. Uh, this was, you see, not just a matter of this woman quietly coming up you know, sidling up to Jesus quietly and giving a little tug on the, on the hem of his garment. Rather, the context was this. Jesus was in the midst of a jostling crowd. <laughs> in Luke chapter 8, again, a, a parallel account here. Jesus said, who touched me? <laughs> when all denied it, Peter and those with him said, so initially, she didn't come forward, right? Everybody's, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. But, but Peter and those with him said, so it's not just Peter, but it's those with him. They said, Master, the multitude's throng impress you. And you say, who touched me? Are you kidding? But Jesus said, somebody touch me. For I perceive power going out from me. So the question of Jesus who touched me seemed ridiculous to Peter because, as he points out, Jesus was being touched by many people in the press of the crowd. But Jesus knew that someone had touched him in a special way because he sensed power going out of him. 
And evidently Jesus knew who it was because it goes on to say in Luke 8, 47, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared uh, to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. Now understand why she came secretly. We need to understand this. Uh, Why did she come in this, you know, undercover, hidden way, sort of way, initially not even wanting to come forward? Well, you see, it was illegal for her to be out in public touching anyone. Because according to Jewish law, she was ceremonially unclean because of this bleeding problem. Leviticus 15 25 says, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, other than at the time of her customary impurity, or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. And if you read the surrounding context, anybody that touched an unclean person was thereby unclean themselves. This woman was basically an untouchable. No one could touch her. She could not worship at the temple. You see, to enter the temple unclean called for 40 lashes or perhaps even stoning. According to Mark, uh, she had spent all of her money. It's kind of interesting, the language here. She had suffered many things from the doctors. Uh, She had spent all of her money on doctors and was no better. She had basically lost everything. Her health, social networking, family care, religious interaction, financial security. It was all gone. It's all gone. Hopeless. It's interesting to note the contrast between the two people, by the way, that are seeking healing from Jesus in this account. Jairus was a man of great esteem in the religious community, while this woman had no standing or resources. He was a synagogue leader. She could not even attend worship services. The girl had been healthy, we assume, uh, for 12 happy years with her family, but this woman had just lived 12 miserable years, perhaps ostracized by her family. The situation of Jairus was public, but hers was private. Again, we see Jesus is for everyone, the high and the low, the well-known and the unknown. Jesus is for everyone. And you know what? Everyone is human, and everyone faces hurting, difficult times. Everyone needs Jesus. On the way to help the prominent leader... Jesus allowed himself to be interrupted by an illegal, in an illegal sort of way by an anonymous woman with no prestige. I like that about Jesus. He doesn't just cater to important people, but he's there for the nobodies. You know, people like me. I've always considered myself kind of a nobody. I, I hope I always do, because the truth is, I am. <laughs> By grace, I am what I am. Praise the Lord. You know, we we understand that too. But uh, this woman, hurting so bad for so long, pinned all of her hopes on Jesus. And here's what she said to herself. Verse 21. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. Many commentators think that the hem of his garment was probably one of the tassels attached to the outer cloak prescribed to be worn by Jews as seen in Numbers 15 and, and Deuteronomy 22-12. Uh, Deuteron- in rather, uh, Numbers 15, we read, Speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have 
the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. So these tassels in effect serve to constantly remind the Jews of their holy calling. This woman thought within herself that if she could only make contact with Jesus in the sense of just touching the edge of his garment, perhaps grabbing one of those tassels, that she would be made well. And I don't think she thought, man, I got to pull it like, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> I think just, just touch it. Just, just, just touch the hem of his garment. Verse 22, but Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Again, both Mark and Luke add more detail. After she touched his garment, Luke 8, 44 says, immediately her flow of blood stopped. Then Jesus looked around uh, to see who had done this. And, and he said, who touched me? And then she confessed it uh, in terms of what had happened. And then Jesus said to her, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Indeed, this is the good cheer she had been seeking for for 12 long years. When all seemed hopeless, Jesus came into her life and healed her. Now, note Jesus called her daughter, which was an affectionate parental term, indicating she was now part of Christ's family. Her faith not only brought physical healing, but perhaps brought her into the family of God if she was not a true believer before this. We're, we're, not, we're not told when she came to you know, have faith uh, as far as a saving faith. The language here is interesting. Um, Moody Bible Commentary summarizes it well. Made you well is literally saved you. When Paul uses the verb, it usually means being rescued from the eternal consequences of sin. And Matthew uses it this way. But here it may mean little more than God delivering her from her physical condition. In this instance, we see that Jesus dealt with individual need based on individual faith. Jesus clearly made her well, but it was based on her faith. It has been pointed out that Jesus did not think in terms of crowds, but rather in terms of individual men and women. Jesus deals with people individually. By way of application, Jesus saves people, and he does it on the basis of personal faith. People do have to personally believe. And yet even that does not happen in a vacuum apart from God's working in their heart. Verse 23, when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. Now you understand Jewish funerals, uh, they did not embalm people. And so we needed to uh, have burial very quickly in this warm climate. And often, uh, typically, the people that died were buried on the very same day that they died. So by the time they got back to the house, the funeral proceedings were well underway. And it was a noisy affair. The idea was the louder the better. You see, Jewish funeral customs, according to the Talmud, required as a duty that even a poor family hire two flute players and one professional wailing woman to properly express grief. I mean, it's the honorable thing to do. You need to have some wailing going on here. 
Now, a well-to-do leader in the community would probably have a whole host of mourners in place. I mean, for his 12-year-old daughter, we are really going to express this properly. As stated, the crowd was wailing when Jesus showed up. But Jesus has a way of changing things when he shows up. And so verse 24 says, he said to them, make room. Loosely translated, get out of the way. Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. Now, this is almost comical, isn't it? They're all carrying on in funeral mode. And Jesus says, make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Now, again, the sense of make room is get out. Luke 8, 54 says he put them all outside, as is also indicated in the very next verse here that we will look at. I like John Phillips' application. He says, some people simply have to be put out if we are to expect the Lord to do anything. (laughs) Yeah, there's some truth there. Jesus is not performed for unbelief. Unbelief gets put out. Uh, When Jesus went back to his hometown, the people refused to believe. And in Matthew 13, 58, it says, Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, it's noteworthy that this crowd ridiculed Jesus for saying the girl was merely sleeping and not dead. And yet, as Lord, Jesus put them out. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is always in charge. Doesn't matter the size of the crowd. He's always in charge. And he was here too. Ridiculed is the idea of laughed at, mocked, or made fun of. And you can understand why, because Luke 8.53 says, And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. This is no person, this is no 12-year-old sleeping in. They knew she was dead. They knew it. It says, knowing that she was dead. They absolutely knew it. Therefore, this is ridiculous. She's just sleeping. She's not dead. That's crazy. We have seen the body. Now, some have thought that she maybe was merely in a coma. But Luke 8.55 says, After Jesus took her by the hand and said, Little girl, arise, that her spirit returned. The definition of death is that the spirit has departed from the body. That's the definition of death. James 2.26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. What's the definition, the biblical definition of death? The body without the spirit is dead. That's the condition of this little girl. For the spirit to return indicates that indeed she was dead. They were right in their analysis. Now, the Bible often uses sleep metaphorically to denote death. Jesus used it this way. The body is pictured as sleeping, which denotes what? This is coming at a good time in the sermon right here. Uh, It's a a temporary condition, right? Uh, Yes, sleeping is temporary. Uh, you, You get up in the morning, right? You wake up. And one day the body will awake in resurrected form, but for now it is pictured as being asleep. And we see this consistently in the scriptures, like Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Talking about resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. That is, died. 
Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Resurrection is that great getting up morning. Those bodies that are asleep in the grave, no matter how far decomposed, at the wake-up call from Jesus will all arise. Jesus himself said this, John 5, 28, 29, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. They're all going to come forth. But note that while the body is pictured as sleeping, the soul is not. There is no such thing as soul sleep. The soul at the time of death is very conscious. Unbelievers go to Hades to await the resurrection of condemnation. And from there they will go to their final place of damnation in the lake of fire. Believers at the moment of death are in the presence of the Lord in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. In Philippians 1.23, Paul says that to depart and to be with Christ is far better. It's a better experience than anything we've known here. And this experience is the experience of every true believer at the moment of death. In Revelation 6, we see the souls of those slain in heaven. Are they... Unconscious? No, they are not. Revelation 6, 9 through 11, he opened the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. My point is, they're very conscious there. In fact, they're crying out to the Lord, you know, how long before you, you know, bring judgment on these people for what they've done to us? So no, they are physically dead, but very alive and conscious in their souls, Their bodies are asleep in the grave, but in their souls they are consciously resting in heaven in anticipation of what God will yet do for them in the resurrection. Well, Jesus spoke of this little girl's death as her being asleep. Again, sleep is a temporary condition. Death, properly understood, is not a permanent condition. Because one day, death will be awakened in the resurrection. When Lazarus died, Jesus in John 11 said, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And then as Jesus came to the grave, he told the weeping sister Martha, quote, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asked her. I might ask you. In the face of death, Jesus declared himself to be the resurrection and the life. And then he proved it by raising Lazarus from the dead. Only Jesus can awaken people from the sleep of death. Verse 25. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. First, the ridiculing crowd was put outside. And I'm sure they were howling all the way. 
We know from Luke that there were five witnesses to this miracle present in the room. Luke 8, 51. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, John, and the father and the mother of the girl. So having put everyone out except for these five, Jesus then went in, took the little girl by the hand, and immediately she arose back to life. There was no long drawn out process. This is going to be a while. This is a tough case. You know, we're we're talking maybe days before we get her back to life. No, 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 no. Immediately she came back to life. And I love this. In Mark 5.31, it says that Jesus said to her, Talitha kami. Talitha kami. Which in Aramaic literally means little one or little lamb arise. Isn't that beautiful? It's the language of the good shepherd. Tender and precious. What we have here in this account is two miracles of restoration that were really considered to be cases that were incurable. The woman with the flow of blood had exhausted all human resources. Humanly speaking, it was hopeless. Jairus, in utter desperation, sought out Christ to help his dying daughter, knowing he had no other recourse. And then it got worse as she was pronounced dead. This was a case of humanly hopeless. Now, in both of these cases, Jesus responded to faith. He told the woman, your faith has made you well. And Jairus in Luke 8, 49 and 50, upon hearing that his daughter had died, was told by Christ, do not be afraid, but only believe, and she will be made well. In conjunction with faith, Christ did the impossible. Also, touching a corpse rendered a person ceremonially unclean for seven days, as seen in Numbers 19. However, Jesus, in touching the girl, brought her back to life and thus instantly transformed uncleanness into purity. We see the same reality instantly and instantly healing the woman with a flow of blood. But there's something even greater in view, and that is the Messiah in the Old Testament is depicted as having life-restoring power. Life-restoring power. How do you do do that? Well, you can't unless your name is life. Life. In Malachi 4.2, the Messiah is pictured as coming with, quote, healing in his wings. Jesus raising people from the dead was a very important proof of his messianic identity. John the Baptist had questions like, why am I sitting in jail? Right? We're announcing the kingdom is at hand. We're expecting you to be the Messiah to bring in the kingdom. And here I am in jail. What? What is this? Good questions. We'll get to this. A few weeks, Lord willing. But here's what Jesus said, sent back to him. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preach to them. In the ministry of Jesus, we have record of him raising three people from the dead. In Luke 7, Jesus raised the dead son of a widow. In John 11, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And here in Matthew 9, he brought this 12-year-old girl back to life. This is significant. Because in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, other places too, but in Deuteronomy 32-39, God himself says... There is no God besides me. Okay. 
But then he continues. I kill. And I make alive. No God besides me. I kill. And I make alive. Well, who can make alive what has been killed? God. This is distinctly a God thing. There are a few occasions in the Bible when a prophet or an apostle in imploring God were able to see people brought back to life, such as Elijah, through prayer, bringing back to life the widow of Zarephath's son, or Peter the apostle through prayer, seeing Tabitha of Joppa raised to life again. But Jesus was different in that he did it firsthand. When Jesus did it, he did it directly firsthand as though he himself were God. He did not have to ask God to do it. He just did it. That is unique to Jesus. It is unique to the Messiah who in truth is God and man in one person. This is what makes Jesus raising people to life completely unique. He functioned as though he were God doing what only God can do. Precisely because he was God come in the flesh. This is his messianic credentials. Verse 26, and the report of this went out out into all that land. Now, it's almost comical again. In Mark 5.43, it says that Jesus commanded them strictly. It's not just a light commandment. Commanded them strictly that no one should know it. Don't tell anybody what's happened here. You five people here in the room, I don't want anybody knowing that I did it. I I, I don't want you to tell. Strictly. And Luke 8, 56 says, Jesus charged the astonished parents, quote, to tell no one what has happened. Boy, that's a heavy weight to put on some parents. You know what? (laughs) I'm not going to argue with the Lord, though. He says, okay. (laughs) All right. We're just happy she's back. But, you know, it's very difficult to hide the reality of a, of a revived living 12-year-old girl who the general public knew for sure had been dead. Somehow word leaked out. I, I, I have no idea how that happened. But somehow it leaked out that Jesus raised her back to life. And then it went forth like a flood to where the report of this went into, out into all the land. What we see in our text today is that Christ brought a whole new joy dynamic in contrast to the old forms of religious Judaism. Christ did impossible things, bringing restoration in impossible situations that can only be described as a total God thing. As a young preacher, D.L. Moody was called upon to preach a sermon at a funeral. He searched the Gospels to see what Jesus had to say in reference to such an occasion. And here's what he wrote down. He says, I hunted all through the four Gospels trying to find one of Christ's funeral sermons. But I couldn't find any. I found he broke up every funeral he ever attended. Death couldn't exist where he was. (laughs) Jesus broke up every funeral he ever attended. Invite him to yours. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I love that about Jesus. He is God, a very God, the divine human Messiah prophesied and promised in the Old Testament scriptures. He is the promised Messiah who can make all things new and in the end will restore all things. 
We have just a little sample of this kingdom renewal power in Christ's earthly sign miracle ministry. This serves to show that indeed Jesus is the true Messiah who ultimately will bring in the kingdom. And as the son of David, he will indeed yet restore all things in fulfillment of prophecy. This ultimately will be completed completely and finally in the kingdom. Jesus is the king. His presence brought a kingdom joy into the lives of those who truly believed in him. Nobody ever did the things that Jesus did. He alone is the resurrection and the life, and he had the ministry to prove it. As Jesus said to Martha, do you believe this? Who is Jesus to you? As our Savior prophesied in Isaiah 53, 700 years before he came, he died for us. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But then he didn't stay dead. He said, I am the resurrection of life. He brought himself back to life the third day, proving he is Lord God Almighty. Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? You have to accept him personally in a life-changing way. And when you do, you too will know the fullness of joy that goes along with knowing Jesus. Let's stand and have our concluding song.